These are the sounds of days that are past. We record a new dimension of history. A scrapbook of sounds from 13 years of violence and achievement. Part of the greatest mass adventure man has yet undertaken. A voice can cut through the hazy fog of time and bring yesterday's images sharply into focus. Do you recognize this voice? You hold the distinction of being the only nation in the history of the world that ever went to the poorhouse in an automobile. That was the voice of Will Rogers, trying to teach America how to laugh its way through a depression. 1933 was dark all over the world. Japan was already in Manchuria, and the League of Nations was dying in Geneva. In Germany, the Reichstag fire was history. So was the Weimar Republic. In Italy, Benito Mussolini had translated a people's search for security into savage conquest. In rich, fertile America, fear and uncertainty lay heavy upon the land. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. Franklin D. Roosevelt stood beside Chief Justice Hughes on the steps of the Capitol on that raw afternoon of March 4th, and a nation with 15 million unemployed listened. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. The first year of the New Deal was vigorous, desperate, experimental, and like a surgeon's most powerful drugs, dangerous. Franklin Roosevelt and his corps of political practitioners, Hopkins, Tugwell, Moley, Wallace, and Hugh Johnson, created the most controversial administration since Lincoln's. And yet, either because of it or in spite of it, the patient revived and prospered. Production and employment were up. The soup kitchens and the apple stands disappeared. But a nervous America was still not sufficiently removed from panic to disregard completely the promises and plans of political soothsayers such as Townsend, Coughlin, and Huey Long. The bank accounts show that one 150th part of the people own two-thirds of all the money that's in the bank. The only way by which we can ever bring this country out is to redistribute the wealth. 1936 was the year in which the state of New Jersey electrocuted Bruno Richard Hauptmann for the Lindbergh kidnapping. It was also a presidential election year. But the biggest news story was in London and concerned political intrigue, an empire, a Baltimore beauty, and the King of England. On the night of December 11th, as Big Ben told the hour, London cinemas were deserted, New York subways empty at their usual rush hour. In Eugene, Oregon, and Johannesburg, you could hear the world quiet down. This is Windsor Castle. His Royal Highness, Prince Edward. At long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. I have never wanted to withhold anything. But until now... It has not been constitutionally possible for me to speak. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king 
as I would wish to do. Without the help and support of the woman I love. And now we all have the new king. I wish him and you, his people, happiness and prosperity with all my heart. God bless you all. God save the king. With the exception of the president, no one in American politics receives a larger paycheck than the mayor of the city of New York. From 1934 to 46, with the exception of the president, no one in American politics made more news than the irrepressible mayor of the city of New York, Fiorello H. LaGuardia. Yes, I have the proof that my kind of city government is the kind of city government the people of our city want. Isn't it grand? There isn't a single solitary county chairman of either party who is in favor of my administration. To use the phrase that Al Smith liked to use in his days, I can run on a laundry ticket and beat these political bums anytime. By the summer of 36, Time was running out on the New Deal's first term. Now the honeymoon was over. Vital segments of the once strongly pro-New Deal press asked for an end to the pump priming and supported the Republican nominee, Governor Alf Landon. Some called him a Kansas Coolidge. I believe that a man can be a liberal without being a spendthrift. At Franklin Field in Philadelphia, to the cheers of more than 100,000 supporters, Franklin D. Roosevelt accepted his party's second call and began a political campaign that was to win him every state but two. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. American labor had made many a long stride under the New Deal and was now big business. Its leaders, the Greens, the Lewises, the Hillmans, were, like their counterparts in management, major political powers. By 1935, John Llewellyn Lewis had increased the membership of his United Mine Workers to almost half a million, had bolted the AFL and formed the CIO. And on Labor Day of 37, he laid the lash of his biblical oratory upon FDR. It was the climax of a row which had been seething since the little steel strike of early spring, when the president had turned to Tom Girdler and Lewis and in a rare moment of petulance said, a plague on both your houses. John Llewellyn Lewis answered, Labor like Israel has many sorrows. Its women weep for their fallen, and they lament for the future of the children of the race. It ill behooves one who has supped at labor's table and who has been sheltered in labor's house to curse with equal fervor and fine impartiality, both labor and its adversaries when they become locked in deadly embrace. The air age was upon us. The dirigible Hindenburg was crossing the Atlantic in less than 48 hours. Pan American was flying San Francisco to Manila and Hong Kong on a timetable. 
But the remarkable air achievement was not without its price. Flyers like Ed Music, Wiley Post, and Amelia Earhart Putnam paid the price for progress. We take you now to Lakehurst, New Jersey. It was drizzling that April night at Lakehurst as announcer Herb Morrison stood beside a WLS sound truck to describe the arrival of the dirigible Hindenburg. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather. And these giant flagships standing here, the American Airlines flagships, waiting to rise into all points in the United States when they get the ship moored. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship. The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... The first the get it started, get it started. It's flashing, it's flashing, it's terrible. Oh, my, get out of the way, please. It's running, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning bath, and all the folks between the distance terrible. This is the one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just a place running. Oh, poor five hundred feet, it's into the sky, and it, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the flame is crashing to the ground, not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity, all the past. This is Munich, Germany, calling. The last 11th hour attempt to save the peace of Europe and avert a world war over the Sudeten muddle has just begun here in Munich. 1938 was the year of crisis. That's William L. Shirer's familiar voice. Senior Mussolini, Mr. Deladier, and Mr. Chamberlain are meeting in the Führerbau, or the Führer's headquarters... To the people of Czechoslovakia, 1938 was a poised knife. To Londoners, it was the digging of slip trenches and a Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, who said... How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country in America that September, it was waking up mornings to hear Nazi cheers and a Führer's rantings. It's animal-like hysteria caricatured by the filtering of the shortwave. For 20 years, he said, German people in Czechoslovakia had to be traitors to their own cause because they were defenseless against Herr Benisch's persecution. Either Benisch will accept my offer and give the Germans in the Sudetenland freedom, or we will take it. Czech freedom was swapped for what Mr. Chamberlain called peace in our time. Tomorrow, Parliament is going to meet. And I shall be making a full statement of the events which have led up to the present anxious and critical situation. And first of all, I must say something to those who have written to my wife or myself in these last weeks to tell us of their gratitude for my efforts and to assure us of their prayers for my success. After my visits to Germany, I realized vividly how Herr Hitler feels that he must champion other Germans. 
He told me privately. And last night he repeated publicly that after this Sudeten German question is settled, that is the end of Germany's territorial claims in Europe. Weighing 193, wearing purple trunks, outstanding contender for heavyweight honors, the former heavyweight title holder, Max Schmeling. The only defeat the Nazis suffered that year was 3,500 miles west of the Sports Palast at the Yankee Stadium. An American Negro who wouldn't believe he was champion until he had conquered the only man who had ever beaten him. World's heavyweight champion, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling. The well-known voice of NBC's Clem McCarthy. Right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head. And Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him right to the body, a left up to the jaw. And Schmeling is down. The count is five. Five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. Yankee Stadium has had many other great moments. But none quite so moving as that when Iron Man Lou Gehrig stepped down after 2,130 consecutive games. I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Great Britain went to war against Germany today. 25 years and 30 days from the time she entered the war of 1914 against the same enemy. France is expected to follow suit within the next few hours. The state of war came into existence... On September 3, 1939, a Labor Day America heard the calm, Midwestern accents of Elmer Davis tell them that the 20-year armistice was ended. Poland was first. Warszawa, zwycięstwo... Poland fell in exactly 26 days. Russia attacked Poland from the east, and that December struck Finland from the south. World's fairs closed for the season at Flushing Meadows and the Golden Gate, and the phony war opened for the season along the Maginot Line. Although a Paderewski concert for Polish relief could fill Carnegie Hall, America First rallies were packing Madison Square Garden. Lindbergh gave them the word. These wars in Europe are not wars in which our civilization is defending itself against some Asiatic intruder. There is no Genghis Khan or Xerxes marching against our Western nations. This is simply one more of those age-old struggles within our own family of nations. If we enter fighting for democracy abroad, we may end by losing it at home. That was Charles A. Lindbergh, the most idolized personality of the Roaring Twenties, who, like Wheeler, Nye, Fish, and the others, fought the administration's attempt to repeal the Embargo Act. There were others who thought differently and supported the president and the good gray judge, Mr. Secretary Hull. Among them, Stimson, Baruch, and Al Smith. Personally, I am not interested in the argument as to whether or not we should return to so-called established principles of international law. I am not a student of law but I'm ready to defend the proposition 
that there is no respect for international law at this time. General Hugh Johnson, once the most powerful lieutenant in the New Deal, now one of its severest critics, said we were shooting craps with destiny. We are being bums rushed toward a fateful choice between immediate involvement in war by our own warlike acts or keeping out of war as long as we can. We are utterly, tragically unready for war or defense today. Many recent acts of ours are acts of war. They are a sort of reckless shooting craps with destiny for the stake of democracy. In the spring, the phony war was ended, and the world's glossary was extended to include Stuka, Panzer, Messerschmitt, Rommel, von Rundstedt, and Deutschland, Deutschland. The Blitzkrieg struck in the north. Denmark fell in four hours. Oslo in a day, Norway in 32. Quisling became a common noun. Wilhelmina's Holland overwhelmed in five days. Leopold gave up the Flanders pocket after 18 days. June 4th, another kind of noun. Dunkirk, that will live as long as the English language. With seven Nazi columns cutting deep into France, the Duce reached a decision. On this 10th day of June, 1940, the hand that held the dagger has struck it into the back of its neighbor. For on that 10th day of June, Benito Mussolini already bulging with Ethiopia and Albania, declared war on France. C'est en ce moment précis, alors que la France blessée, mais vaillante et debout, a desperate Premier Paul Renault, with the Nazis flooding into Paris, hammering France into submission, turned to America and promised that France would fight on if our president would send help. Our generals, he said, are commanding battalions. Send us waves of planes and we shall hurl back the invader. France will never die. That's the Nazi band that Paul Goebbels rushed to the famous railroad carriage in the forest at Compiègne. Here where the Franco-Prussian War ended in 1872, here across the same table where Marshal Foch humbled the Kaiser's generals in 1918, Adolf Hitler had his revenge in a humiliating French surrender. Achtung, hier ist der Großdeutsche Rundfunk. Sie hören jetzt die soeben eingetroffenen ersten Rundfunkberichte vom Beginn der Verhandlungen 
über den Waffenstillstand mit Frankreich im Walde von Compiègne. After the disaster in Norway, Britain's House of Commons held a postmortem, which raged for two days and two nights. Jeers and insults flew like shrapnel across the room, and at the end of it all, Neville Chamberlain walked out alone, a beaten, broken man. It was clear that at this critical moment in the war, what was needed was the formation of a government which would include members of the Labour and Liberal oppositions. His Majesty has now entrusted to my friend and colleague, Mr. Winston Churchill, the task of forming a new administration on a national basis. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country, of our empire, of our allies, and above all, of the cause of freedom. Winston Churchill offered nothing but blood, tears, sweat and toil. For years, he sat in the House of Commons like the conscience of England, his warnings ignored, as the big clock above the Speaker's chair ticked off the wasted hours. Now the hour had come for him to mobilize the English language and send it into battle, a spearhead of hope for Britain and the world. We have joined together some of that Churchillian prose. It sustained, it lifted the hearts of an island people when they stood alone. Behind the armies and troops of Britain and France, gather a group of shattered states and bludgeon great races, the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, the Belgians, upon all of whom the long night of barbarism will descend, unbroken even by a star of hope, unless we conquer, as conquer we must, as conquer we shall. June 18th, I can hear it now. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this and from a bombed building in a burned-out city, where the bombers came at dusk and departed at dawn, came the voices of two princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret Rose, sending greetings to evacuated children. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. Forty-eight days before the Republicans moved into Philadelphia's convention hall to select their candidate for 1940, he was a wealthy corporation lawyer, a political unknown, who had been a Democrat for all but four years of his life. But by the dawn of June 28th, an army of political amateurs had incited a GOP rebellion. And Wendell L. Wilkie had knocked the Taft-Dewey-Vandenberg campaigns into a cocked hat. As Chairman Joe Martin put it, Out of the hearts of these patriotic Americans, Came the chant. We want Wilkie! Wilkie's hulking Midwestern frame, his shock of rumpled hair, his big gesturing hands, were seen by millions of voters in 51 days and 18,000 miles of the most vigorous campaigning since Teddy Roosevelt. At Elwood, 
200,000 fellow Hoosiers heard that hoarse yet vibrant voice accept the nomination. And I would also like to debate the question of the assumption by this president in seeking a third term of a greater public confidence than was accorded to our presidential giants, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, and Woodrow Wilson. I accept the nomination of the Republican Party for president on stage. But I say this too, in the pursuit of that goal, I shall not lead you down the easy road. I shall lead you down the road of sacrifice and of service to your country. More Americans cast their ballot for Wilkie than for any Republican candidate in history. 22 million. But he was stacked up against the most successful vote-getter of them all. I've had a glorious day here in New England. During this campaign, FDR coined one of his favorite slogans. I still remember. He is one of that great historic trio which has voted consistently against every measure for the relief of agriculture, modern, foreign, and fish. Adolf Hitler held the continent. Britain braced itself, endured its ordeal by fire and blast, and new hope came from the new world. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. And when Wilkie went abroad to see for himself, he carried a message to Churchill. The other day, President Roosevelt gave his opponent in the late presidential election a letter of introduction to me. And in it, he wrote out a verse in his own handwriting uh, from Longfellow. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. What is the answer that I shall give in your name to this great man? Give us the tools, and we will finish the job. Now there was an embargo on scrap iron shipments to Japan. A month later, Lend-Lease was law, and nine months later, the Atlantic Charter was born off the Newfoundland banks. Where were you on the afternoon of December 7, 1941? If your name is Michel Piastro, you were at Carnegie Hall tightening the strings of your violin for the Sunday afternoon performance. If you are Gerald Nye, you are addressing 2,200 America Firsters in Pittsburgh. If your name is Saburo Caruso, you are waiting in the outer office of Cordell Hull. If you are a sailor named Thomas at a place called Pearl Harbor, you and 2,116 of your buddies will be dead when the day is done. interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. The President of the United States. If your name is Sam Rayburn, you lift your gavel and rap for order as a joint session of senators and representatives many of them bitter foes of the man on the rostrum, 
cheer him madly. Because like most Americans, they are angry, frightened, and confused. And he is the President of the United States. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. If you were in Manila that night or in Singapore or London, you know the terror of that sound. You know it can never be imitated. It is the shimmering wail of a hundred sirens bouncing off the echo chambers, which are a bombed city's dead buildings and deserted docks. If you were on Bataan that night, or the Burma Road three months later, or Guadalcanal a year later, you know that when a howitzer shell explodes, the jungle screams back. From Rayburn's gavel to the warning signal of the D-Day Armada. Our glossary of war words reached round the globe and back again. Corregidor in Sevastopol, Strobing in Wainwright and HMS Prince of Wales, Sidi Barani in the Irrawaddy, Archangel in Bazerta in the Makassar Straits, Flak Happy, Radar, Spitfire, the Bazooka, and the Molotov Cocktail, Schweinfurt, Ploeste, Dieppe, Ascension, the Kasserine Pass, and Hill 609. M1, JU-88, APO-885, OSS, and Jig Easy Sugar Queen. The Pripet Marshes, the Lido Road, the Slot, the Hump, the Repel Depots, the Piccadilly Commandos, and a beach called Anzio. The Memphis Bell, Geronimo, Wild Bull, the Fighting Lady, and the ceremonious peeling of Big Ben. The discordant bong of our little Liberty Bell on D-Day. This is Supreme Headquarters... Allied Expeditionary Force. And a man from Kansas with a message half the world had prayed for. General Dwight D. Eisenhower. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. And the liberation, like the message that signaled it, came in many tongues. The French of Charles de Gaulle. La bataille suprême est engagée. Après tant de combats, de fureur, de douleur, voici venu le choc décisif. And a Polish foreign minister in exile. Żołnierze, lotnicy, marynarze Polacy. Wkraczamy w decydującą fazę generalnej rozgrywki i porachunku z Niemcami. Those who were there say King Haakon wept as he spoke to Norway. Landsmen. Some did it in store, Tartier's plan. Some had a sick, the Pafrik going, Aperopas, Honor Turk the Folk. 
And there were messages from the Dutch, the Danes, the Luxembourgers, and the Belgians. Mes chers compatriotes, les opérations préliminaires pour la libération de l'Europe ont commencé. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Together we shall achieve victory. Because D-Day was the most important day of the war, and very possibly of our generation, some of the broadcasts of those first 24 hours achieved a special kind of permanence. One of these originated on the headquarters ship Ancon, just off the French coast. Your reporter, George Hicks of the ABC. Our own ship has just gave its morning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight. The history of wars does not know of any undertaking so broad in concept and so grandiose in its scale and masterful in its execution. Those words about the invasion of the continent were spoken by Joseph Stalin. You are listening to one of the rare recorded speeches of Marshal Stalin. Comrades, today we celebrate the 24th anniversary of the October Revolution in difficult times. The enemy is even now before the gates of Leningrad and Moscow. Long live our glorious motherland. Under the banner of Lenin, onward to victory. The Soviet Union, invaded by Hitler in June of 41, fought where it could, retreated, scorched its earth, held the line from Lake Ladoga to the Black Sea, and in so doing won the respect of the world. By the summer of 44, the Ukrainian 4th Army was in the Carpathians, the American 1st five miles inside Germany, the British 2nd in Holland at Arnhem, the Marines, the Army, and the Seabees in the Marianas. And by October, the American 6th was back in the Philippines. At home, people worked and waited and watched the political battle. These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me or on my wife or on my sons. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Fallon. Franklin Roosevelt versus Thomas Dewey. This is a campaign against an administration which was conceived in defeatism, which failed for eight straight years to restore our domestic economy, which has been the most wasteful, extravagant, and incompetent administration in the history of the nation, and worst of all, one which has lost faith in itself and in the American people. On the 20th day of January, 45, Franklin Roosevelt took his fourth oath of office. 
Bastogne and the Bulls were history now. MacArthur was ashore at Luzon and Lingayan Gulf and striking for Manila. And the Marines were studying terrain maps of a place called Iwo Jima. Early that March, the President, visibly weary, went before the Congress to report on Yalta. I hope that you will pardon me for an unusual posture of sitting down during the presentation of what I want to say. But I know that you will realize that it makes it a lot easier for me in not having to carry about 10 pounds of steel round on the bottom of my legs and also because of the fact that I have just completed a 14,000-mile trip. Speaking in all frankness, the question of whether it is entirely fruitful lies to a great extent in your hands. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. That's radio's way of shouting extra, as John Daly did late that April afternoon. Wilderness Road. Adventure on the American frontier with the Weston family and Daniel Boone in the exciting days following the American Revolution. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. If you were one of those who loved FDR, and there were many, or if you were one of those who hated him, and there were many, that flash from Warm Springs was as personal as a body blow or a wire from the War Department. Without warning, the central pivot had slipped out of a 12-year era, and you were stunned by this sudden cleavage of time. He had gone down Pennsylvania Avenue many times before, this was his last trip to the White House. A city watched. A nation listened. Arthur Godfrey, an old Washington hand, described it. The drums are wrapped in black crepe and are muffled, as you can hear. And the pace of the musicians is so slow. And behind them, these are Navy boys. And now just, just coming past the Treasury... I can see the horses drawing the case on. And most generally, folks having as tough a time as I am trying to see it. And behind us, behind us is the car bearing the man on whose shoulders now falls the terrific burdens and responsibilities that were handled so well by the men to whose body we're paying our last respects now. God bless him, President Truman. We'll return you now to the studio. One of FDR's most fitting epitaphs was written before he died by a Kansas Republican, William Allen White. Biting good Republican nails, we are compelled to say that Franklin Roosevelt is the most unaccountable president the United States has ever seen. He has seen more of this amazing world than Marco Polo. Well, darn your smiling old picture, here it is. We who hate your gaudy guts salute you. Now, if you listen very closely, you will hear some unrehearsed stage whispers between Speaker Rayburn and the 32nd President. Mr. Speaker. Just a moment, let me present you, will you, Harry? Members of the Congress... I have the great pleasure and the high privilege 
are presenting to you the President of the United States. There was another burst of applause and cheers, and then Americans settled back to listen to their new president. Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, members of the Congress, it is with a heavy heart that I stand before you, my friends and colleagues, in the Congress of the United States. Within an hour after I took the oath of office, I announced that the San Francisco conference would proceed. In the memory of those who have made the supreme sacrifice, in the memory of our fallen president, we shall not fail. Thirteen days later, Secretary of State Edward Stettinius stepped before the delegates of 46 nations. Conference of the United Nations on International Organization is now convened. We shall open the conference with one minute of silent and solemn meditation. On May 8th, President Truman announced that another promise had been kept. I only wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to witness this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. In the days just prior to VE Day, Allied divisions in Germany began meeting the most extreme victims of fascism. Out of death factories there began to emerge the living, stumbling ghosts of Buchenwald, Dachau, and Belsen. And a new set of initials joined our language, DPs. Albert Einstein, German refugee, class of 33. Enrico Fermi, Italian exile, class of 38, might well have been among them. And we might have lost the battle of the atomic scientists, which had its climax on the island of Tinian on August 6th, 45. Now you are at the world's largest airfield on Tinian in the Marianas. The voice you hear is that of Chaplain William Downey, who stood amongst the target charts, the escape kits, and the stale coffee, and said a prayer for the Enola gay and civilization. We pray thee that the end of the war may come soon, and that once more we may know peace on earth. May the men who fly this night be kept safe in thy care, and may they be returned safely to us. We shall go forward trusting in thee, knowing that we are in thy care now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The bomb run lasted four minutes. The bomb went away at 9.15. My God was the only entry in the co-pilot's diary. 78,150 people died at Hiroshima. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. The world will note that the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, a military base. We won the race of discovery against the Germans. We have used it in order to shorten the agony of war, in order to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. We shall continue to use it until we completely destroy Japan's power to make war. 7 p.m. Eastern Wartime, Bob Trout reporting. The Japanese have accepted our terms fully. That's the word we've just received from the White House in Washington. 
This, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the Second World War. The United Nations on land, on the sea, in the air, and to the four corners of the earth are united and are victorious. We got that information on a special line from the White House, and now it's beginning to come in on the wire services, too. President Truman announced it at 7 p.m. tonight, just a minute ago, and now a flash, MacArthur appointed Jap boss over the Emperor of Japan. Where were you on September 2nd, 1945? If you were Jonathan Wainwright, you were on the crowded, heavy decks of the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay, listening to an old comrade call your name. Will General Wainwright... And General Percival, step forward and accompany me while I sign. If your name was Douglas MacArthur, you have kept the date made 3,000 miles and four years ago. Let us pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings are closed. At the historic instant, when the first atomic bomb seemed to charge out of the bowels of the earth, Professor George Kistakovsky remarked, I am sure that on doomsday, in the last millisecond, the last man on earth will see what we have just seen. In direct contrast, William Lawrence of the New York Times felt as though he were present at the dawn of creation when the Lord said, Let there be light. If the universe is as many millions years old as we think it is, our crowded little era of 13 years is but an instant of yesterday when it is past. 1933's unemployment, September at Munich, that June 10th at Lidice, December 7th at Pearl Harbor, 9.15 over Hiroshima, were all part of the identical moment. The one question remaining then, was it 23.59 o'clock or 0001? Was there to be still another cycle of affliction, appeasement, and annihilation? Or had we walked through midnight towards the dawn without knowing it?